Hi, everyone. This is Scott. Summer 2023 is now upon us, and I hope you're staying cool. And by that, I mean physically and metaphysically. So I tend to traffic in themes on this podcast, and today, well, I think you could say the theme is the backyard documentary, which is to say, what are the stories you find when you think locally and act locally? Morgan Elliott is a wonderful example of this. He is an experienced filmmaker who's traveled far and wide, but he looked no further than his own upstate New York County for his first feature documentary. Elliot's film, Potty Town, was released in 2022. It's a film that lives in a subgenre of sorts. You know, the old man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself. Well, Potty Town is kind of man versus government. And the result is quirky in some ways, profound in others, and quite entertaining throughout. And Elliot captures all of this while barely leaving his own zip code. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You know, this is such a fun film, but it's not a frivolous film. There are some important ideas at its core. But before we get into the story, I'd really like to set the scene uh, for where Potty Town takes place. This is an area that's uh, closer to Ottawa and Montreal than it is to the closest American city. So kind of a different place. Um, Tell me about the North Country of New York and uh, how does that culture differ from other parts of the country? Yeah, so we're in uh, upstate New York. We call it the North Country. Um, We're about four hours north of Albany, right on the Canadian border. Like any place we have, this area has its pros and cons. We're uh, a bit depressed economically. Um, There's poor health. One of our main industries up here is the healthcare industry. There's a lot of hospitals. And we have four colleges up here within 15 minutes of each other. So uh, that brings a lot of diversity up here, brings different ideas. And you, it is interesting. You get sort of like a clash between, I hate to use these terms, but like a more liberal um, population and a more conservative population that are locals up here. But the communities can and do get along. Like with the toilets, it's interesting to, to see the breakdown between uh, who supports them and who doesn't. Tell me when you first became aware of this very peculiar story, and and maybe tell me about when you decided that you had to make this a film. Uh, So as long as I can remember, uh, the toilets have been in my peripheral. Potsdam's about 10 minutes away from where I grew up, Um, but the the towns, it's so small that I always say like the, the entire county is kind of like your hometown. Everybody knows each other across towns. So I would drive through Potsdam when I was a kid with my parents and you would, you would see the toilets. And at that age, you're just, you, you're kind of wondering what these are and you ask your parents and they might not know. So they were just kind of there and you're like, oh, it's just the toilet guy in Potsdam. It was like, you didn't really, after a while it becomes uh, normalized and you're, you don't really think about it too much. But, but as I got older and I started getting into film work, I did have more questions about it. And I I ended up working with a guy who was the first reporter to report on the toilet saga back in 2002 or three. I asked him if I could sit down and interview him on camera about the toilets. So we sat down for about two hours. And when we got done, I, I thought, I think there might be, as you said earlier, there's some underlying themes 
in this story that I kind of want to explore. And, and I just went from there. I started interviewing other reporters. I started interviewing people involved in the story, doing a lot of research. And I never really planned to make this into a feature film. It was more like, let's just see what happens. Maybe it'll be a short documentary. And, uh, but there was just enough. And, and that was one thing I didn't want to do is like, I don't want to stretch this out just to make it a feature. Like that wasn't one of my goals. I, I was fine with it being a short film, but, uh, but it just, it ended up getting into that kind of tweener stage, like around 50 minutes. And I said, well, I, I think I can get this another 15 minutes. And, and so it happened. It, it, it that all that happened over the course of about five years. Before we go too much <laughs> further, uh, Maybe uh, let's set the scene. Tell me the story of Hank Robar and how this whole thing got started. So back in 2003, Hank Robar wanted to uh, sell a piece of his property to Dunkin' Donuts. So they were going to build a donut shop there. In order to understand the first bit of conflict in this story, you have to understand that Potsdam's a small town with you know, the big players in the town. And, and there's, you know, there's politics involved and nepotism and people helping their friends. And so Hank wasn't really uh, viewed as one of the uh, big players in the town. He had uh, his fair share of rental properties and he had done well for himself, but had a very small, modest beginning. Him and his father had started a gas station and, and kind of grew it up from nothing. But they, essentially there was people on the village board that didn't really like Hank. And uh, even though his property was surrounded by other uh, B1 business zones, his was a B2 and they wouldn't allow him to change that to have the Duncan. And he felt like he wasn't treated fairly because other people had got, you know, other people had had the zoning change for their properties. It, it really started. He put, he planted corn on his property as a mild protest and said, essentially, if I can't sell this property, it's worthless. And so I'll get something out of it. And, you know, there were stories about, uh, deer coming into the village and eating his corn and causing a nuisance in the village. And he was planting he, that the corn and manure and the manure was going to stick up the town or something. So, uh, so that's kind of how it started. And then it, uh, he noticed that it really irked the village board members. And, and I always say Hank's like the Dennis, the menace of Potsdam. He's like going around hitting people's fence with a stick. So I think, I think he was encouraged by, um, <laughs> the bad reaction to it. So he uh, started putting out toilets. He had spare toilets um, from his rental properties. And the and I never got a straight answer out of him, but the one of the rumors was that he had gone up to Clarkson, one of the colleges, to an auction. Uh, they had cleaned out one of their dorms and he bought a bunch of toilets from Clarkson, which was kind of ironic because Clarkson was one of the big players in the town that um, really disapproved of the toilets. So I don't know. They might've given him his ammunition. I'm not sure. Um, but it, it just really, for the next 20 years, it was just a back and forth between Hank and the village with lawsuits and, um, code violations and, uh, uh, you know, vandalism all mixed in. So with stories of this nature, there are usually some folks that don't want the story to be told. And I'm curious if you face some resistance within your community that might have impeded your progress or maybe just the comfort of the progress. Yeah, I was a little nervous when uh, th there were some people I was working with and they're like, you know, we got to get this out. We got to get it out into the um, 
into the newspaper and 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 I and I agreed because I thought I wanted the community to be involved in the story. That to me, it was like this is a story about a community and about um, pe- you know people's identities within that community and how that shapes how they feel about the toilets. But I, I, I was a little hesitant because I'm like I know as soon there has been so much coverage over the years on these toilets. As soon as they put in the newspaper that I'm making a film about it. It's just like all hell is going to break loose and uh, a little bit of hell broke loose. Um, so I would get emails from uh, like little old ladies that were like, I, I think one, uh, I can't remember verbatim, but it was, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. And um, how would you like it if I called Canton Cowtown? Uh, you're embarrassing us all. So, you know, it does hurt. It does make you second guess a little bit like am i doing this for the right reasons but i really did think i i felt that i was um but they make you take a step back and think which is probably a good thing tell me how the story arc kind of evolved as you got deeper and deeper into it i mean honestly one of the the initial thoughts i had is like there's a lot of opinions on the toilets and in the community. And that was a big part of the story. But I was thinking like this, this film can't just be like a back and forth between, you know, the toilets are junk. The toilets are art. I wanted to get in and get out and do it succinctly, more succinctly than I do it when I tell it in person. There's really not a lot of events that occurred in this film. So like I'm working on a few films now where like there's a lot of things that happen. You have like little markers throughout the documentary where you're like, okay, here's a beat and here's a beat sort of thing. Um, you have like kind of more defined acts, but um, in, in this film and it's, st- it stretched such a long time with a lot of gaps in between with nothing really happening. It was just like people in the, the newspaper in the op-eds, or the community outreach section of the newspaper, just like spewing their opinion. And, and, and the other thing is I think the film probably would have been longer if the village board had agreed to talk to me. They were really, really avoidant. I even on occasions, I had the historian from Potsdam lined up to do an interview. We were just going to, I said, we won't talk about the toilets. I just want the history of Potsdam to kind of give me some information and maybe I'll use it in the film. And like a week before the interview, the village manager or whatever came in and axed the interview and was like, nope. And that was after the lawsuit was over. So there was really no, like, we can't like NDA, we can't talk about this sort of thing. So it was, I think if I had gotten deeper into their perspective, which I wanted to, it would have been uh, a longer film, maybe another 15, 20 minutes. So you do a really good job of not taking a side overtly. And yet it's clear that you have affection for Hank. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how you kind of approach the journalistic sort of requirements of a story like this in terms of dealing with somebody who's going to be seen as a heroic kind of figure against a government that won't speak to you and isn't very sympathetic. How, how did you balance that? Yeah, um, it was a big deal for me because of the local opinions that I stay as neutral as possible. But I, I really don't think it is possible to stay neutral in a documentary film. I, I think as soon as you make the first cut, you, you've influenced the film and you're biased in some way because you're choosing what goes in there. I think there's some skill in trying to stay as neutral as possible and riding that line of like, okay, like you said, I can feel affection for Hank. And we all feel affection, I think, for the little guy that stands up to, to the bully. And so it was like, 
that's a natural part of the story. And I don't want to shy away from that. And I, I want to give the bully, um, their chance to say something. And I want to, I, it was a lot harder to find people who would talk against the toilets on camera than it was, um, people who were supporters. So I, I really had to go out and seek those people and find them to include their perspective. There's a lot of people that would say things on Facebook about, how the toilets are trash and they make the, the, they give us a bad rep up here and all this stuff. But when I asked them, you know, do you want to talk on camera? They really shied away from it. And I think that's part of that, like, uh, staying anonymous on social media. That's where people feel comfortable spewing their hatred or whatever. So this is not really a filmmaking question, but I, uh, I'm curious nonetheless, but in watching the film, I couldn't help but have the impression that well, local politics and your local government change for having made this film. I think I knew that was there a little bit. We don't know the exact number, but they had a significant payout to Hank. And yes, it's through an insurance um, company, but th they have to pay the premium on that. And, and no doubt it, it's going up. And so that's village taxpayer money. And, you know, I have family that owns property in Potsdam. I've lived in Potsdam and contributed to the tax base. And to have them dismiss me, so quickly and, and, and not even have a, a conversation. They wouldn't return my phone calls. It, that was the part that was a little eye-opening to me. It was like, whoa, okay, I guess things are done behind closed doors here. People that have seen the film that aren't from this area, I've had a lot of people message me. And I think that's one of the parts that resonated most is like, they lived in a place where they felt like their local politics were a little shady as well. And I, and it seems to be a universal thing that like people can relate to that. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just a smaller reflection of what's going on on a national stage. This film is wonderful and there are many interesting sort of plot points and I don't want to spoil too much of it because I do think it's a film people should get out there and watch and enjoy the way I did. So let me turn the conversation to you and the process, uh, which is really what I'm so deeply interested in anyway. So you're an experienced film and TV guy, but I believe this was your first feature-length documentary as uh, as a director. Take me through that experience. Like, what did you expect? What did you take away from being, like, the guy on a film? So I did the first initial interviews in 2017, and I didn't know, truthfully, what to do with it. So, Because I'd never done a project this big, and I it sat on my shelf for, like, two years. And it was finally when uh, a friend of mine who also works in film and video production came, came to me and said, uh, Hey, uh, I know you, you started working on this project. Um, I have a, a friend who's like an executive producer and he can kind of, uh, help us with this project and do you want to work on it together? And I think that was really the impetus, the, or the motivation that I needed. It, it, it felt a little daunting going at it myself. So once I had more people on board, it was, it was motivation and it was also holding me accountable, um, that, you know, there's, I got to get this stuff done and I got to do it right. And so that's when it really kicked off. It was like two years that I didn't touch it. And then we shot a series of interviews over two months. We did a lot of interviews. And then over the next like year and a half, I was getting a lot of B-roll and, um, you know, picking up pickups that I needed here and there and, and editing the editing process is like, I think that's the one thing that was 
uh, most different from doing the short doc style stuff is like when you have something that big, number one, like the pacing is much different. I think like I was always doing pretty concise, short, uh, you on YouTube now, like you, you need to catch people's attention. So you got to grab with those short videos, you got to grab them quick with this. It was more of like a slow burn. And, And then the other thing was like organization. I had never had, I mean, we had just terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of footage. We shot on a, um, a couple different cameras. Uh, we shot on a red, we did a lot of, uh, uh, red dragon, uh, interviews, um, and we were using a Canon C200, um, which I don't know if, if anybody's familiar with that camera, it's a great camera, but if you want to get, uh, it's kind of limited cause you either shoot an eight bit or you shoot in like a light raw. And those files are huge cause you can't shoot an eight bit for something like this. So I just had like so much footage and, uh, I had to buy new hardware, my com- uh, computer to edit on. So it was a, it was a big investment for me and had to organize all the footage. So like, you're not going through and looking for things for days. And then I did all the transcoding for all the interviews. So if I like knew I needed something, I could just find where it was. I had it like time stamped. So a lot of that stuff was new to me. So let me keep probing here because I, I think you're really kind of getting at what I'm so interested in, which is the, the idea that every film has struggle at the core of its DNA, that there's something yeah. that's kind of in the way, whether it's the mental game of like staying on track um, or some sort of like more logistical obstacles. And it sounds like for you, it was a little bit more of a mental game of like, how do I move this forward on my own? Did you think that maybe this film would never get made? Yeah, I, I, it was a real possibility. It was actually COVID, funny enough that, you know, all these other productions, these big productions shut down during COVID. But um, I actually had to come back to this area from Boston during COVID. I didn't want to be in the city. And for the first time in a while, I had nothing to do. So that was part of it, too, is um, everything was shut down. And I couldn't do, no one was really doing like freelance video work or it was very limited. You had to wear masks. So a lot of the interview shots you see, um, we purposely did outside because it was during COVID and we wanted people to have masks off for the interviews. Um, So like I would have to, you know, figure out how we were going to shoot it based on where the sun was and what equipment we had. You know, we had some diffusers and reflectors and things like that for outside, but um, it was a lot of it was like run and gun and I was, I was DPing a lot of it myself. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, fly by the seat of our pants and, uh, try to make people feel comfortable. And we were distancing like, you know, 10 feet at all times. So it was, it was, there was challenges there too. I really commend you for, um, making that artistic decision because I think so many films from the COVID era will be forever stamped as being COVID films because of the, appearance of a mask and, you know, health concerns aside, it was all very serious at the time. You are making art for hopefully something that will survive for 10 years. And I I detected no sense that this was made during the pandemic, which I think is quite an achievement. I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about that role of the producer, because it sounds like that was a key role. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that, that role worked in terms of this production and how it helped you get over the finish line? So myself and another guy, John Sovi, uh, we produced the film. We had, I mean, we had no budget, zero. Like I, I spent um, some of my own money. Like I said, I had to buy hardware. We had to 
we had, he, John had some of the equipment. I had some of the equipment already from working, you know, we just owned our own stuff. Yeah. We, we didn't have any money. And so like, luckily I had the time because usually that's the trade-off is like, you need to have money to pay yourself or pay other people for the time. But I, I had just finished my grad degree and I was doing some freelance stuff, but it was, like I said, it was all shut down. So it was, I had the time, I had no money, but I had uh, a little bit of a team around me. So the other people involved, uh, CJ Wallace and Mallory Kennedy, um, I met through John. They're they're out in LA. They had a lot of experience in uh, documentary film. CJ's uh, directed the film Perfect Bid uh, about the Ted Sloss and the Price is Right contestant that's on Netflix. And their role was really... It was just overseeing the project, um, uh, keep making sure I was staying on task. You know, they would check in with me every once in a while. How's things going? We have, uh, you know, they had some distributors that were interested in seeing it. So that was motivation to, to keep going and to get it done. And and CJ actually did the animations for the film. He's He does a lot. He's kind of a jack of all trades. But they basically did a lot of the PR, like afterwards, getting me on some podcasts and they got the deal signed with the distributor, but, but really boots on the ground. It was me and John and mostly me, me, honestly, like, I think I calculated, like I spent like 2,500 hours on the film, uh, which seems crazy, but it was just like, you know, we did multiple re-edits. That was one thing CJ really helped with. He, I would send him a cut and we recut the film probably two or three times. And he was just kind of giving me an outsider's perspective. That was really important. 2,500 hours. That is, uh, I, th- I think about 315 full work days. That's, that is a tremendous amount of work, but it sounds like just having other people involved, just the expectation that you were going forward and they were expecting you to go forward that kind of gave you that little tailwind to keep, keep moving toward the finish line. Well, I think it's pretty accurate. I, we did have a contract uh, with Mallory and CJ. So, you know, but everything was based on percentages on the back end of the film. So it wasn't, you know, we didn't pay anybody up front to work on it, but they, they were instrumental. Like without CJ and Mallory, the film wouldn't have happened. Um, I didn't know them at the beginning of the film. And now there's, they're very close friends of mine. So if nothing else, I mean, I'm very proud of the film and, and everything that comes with it. But like meeting them was probably the best thing that happened on that film. I'm cause I still work with them today more than anything. It was like a mentorship. Like he had been there and he had done it. And he, if I had any questions, he was there to answer them and to kind of push me in the right direction. Well, I, I find that so fascinating because I, I went to a filmmaker meetup here in Durham just last week and I was really struck by how 90, 7% of the conversation was around funding, 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 funding. How am I going to find money? Nobody was talking about craft, their stories. Like it, it's just this constant anxiety, I think, for a typical filmmaker. And it sounds like you cracked the nut, which is to like get people who are bought into the story and its potential. And we're willing to, to kind of work on like a future expectation of success. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very fair. And, um, like our vision of where we wanted to be 10 years from now, it wasn't just with potty town. It was like the whole, um, direction we were headed with film and what we wanted to do was kind of aligned. And so I'll be honest, I haven't made a penny on it yet. Um, 
because we did all like backend deals with the distribution company. Um, so you have to like fill a retainer or a, sorry, a recoupment that they have like a certain amount that they spent on marketing and all this stuff. And then, and then once you, the film makes recoups that money, uh, it's broken down into percentages, how much they get, how much we get. Um, so we're hoping we're all, I think we're almost in the black, but if you have a film that gets picked up by Netflix or a big streamer, um, then it's, it's worth it right away. Um, but if you don't, it might take years, but we have like a 15 year contract with the distributor. So over the next 15 years, uh, we'll get a little bit of money here and there, and hopefully that'll help us make the next film. So now that you've directed a feature length documentary, which congratulations, by the way, that's, that's no small deal. What did you learn? What would you say is the number one job of a director when pushing forward a documentary? I think I, I definitely learned a lot. Um, one thing you learn is, I don't know if you learn it so much or gain it or whatever, but it's like confidence is a big thing because when you, when you look at, okay, I'm going to make an hour and a half film, it's, it's a huge time investment. And you, and again, you don't know if you're going to get the money back. So it's confidence that like, okay, I can at least do this. I can definitely do this. And I, and it seems like, you know, people are liking what I've done so far. Um, I think we've had a lot of people reach out that love the film and pretty decent ratings. Not that that's the, you know, the end all be all, but it, it, I guess it does matter in a world where you're trying to make it into a living. So it was, it was confidence. And then in terms of like production, interviewing is like with a documentary, that's, that's everything because that's your story. Like the, the people are telling the story for you. So it all, it depends on what you ask them, what, what they're going to give and, and how your relationship with them is and how, if they feel comfortable and everyone's different, that's the hard part. You got to really feel people out when you sit down for an interview. It's like some people you can ask them, a, you can ask them a yes or no question and they'll talk for like five minutes straight. Other people, you could say, tell me about this, like leave it very open-ended and uh, they'll give you like a line. So you got to, sometimes you got to press them and like, one thing uh, like CJ would say that he kind of discovered on his film that's what I thought was interesting is he would ask the same question if they were kind of like not quite giving him the answer. He's like, if I asked the question three times, they would finally answer it on the third time. But like in different ways, you know, change up the way you you talk about it or the way you ask it. Um, so it's like you got to become an interrogator uh, and and you got to be able to read people. And I mean, now I use some different techniques. Now, sometimes I'll ask some questions right at the beginning where I know I'm not going to use any of it. And it's just getting them comfortable. Um, like give them something that they, you can tell they really like know a lot about or want to talk about. And that kind of gets their juices flowing. And then after that, they can, they'll open up about other things too. I think, I mean, I know that's the way I work. Like if somebody gets me talking about something that I care about or that, um, that I, am able to articulate well, then like the other stuff starts flowing better too. So I'm, I'm curious about that last part about interviewing and how it intersects with the story you're trying to tell. I'm curious, like, how did you approach that? Did you have an outline? Did you have um, some sort of treatment or a vision of that you could work backwards from? I had a vision and that's, I think like for me, I did the first one, I did Potty Town and now I'm like way more organized. Like I'm writing the fictional version of this story first 
if you have a path and then the path diverts, you can keep going and, and with some confidence. I definitely had it in my head. So like I knew uh, roughly like what the, how the story was going to flow. I think it would have helped if I put it down long form. I had expectations going into it about what people would say and what I wanted them to say. And I had to learn to listen because sometimes they'd be giving me something good and I wasn't listening deeply enough to ask like a good follow-up or to really dig into what they were saying because I was like too focused on what like I was going to ask next or what I thought I needed from them. So just listen to them. Like they're going to, they're going to point you in the right direction uh, or they might point you in a direction you weren't expecting. That's better than what you had in mind. You did something in the film I thought was rather charming and a little bit novel, which was to include local residents, but not identify them by name, but identify them almost by type, if you will. Tell me how you found those people and maybe what kind of role you expected them to play other than just providing color. The reason I wanted to do that was there's a couple reasons. One was like all people can kind of relate to this small town story. And so if I just keep these people generic by not naming them, I think like other people might feel like that's somebody in my town. I also felt like this was a story about them as a collective whole um, and like the village and its identity and like all these little parts that make it up. I, I literally sometimes would just drive around town and uh, I had a friend from my program at Boston who came to visit me and wanted to help for a week. And we would just ride around and we go, oh, there's somebody that looks interesting. Like they might have something to say about this. The people in the blue truck, um, that was such a striking image to like just stumble upon. Like they were literally just sitting in the back of the truck. Like, like we didn't stage them. They were just like that. Uh, we came around the corner and I'm like, oh my God. Okay, we got to get these people. And they were just around the block from the toilets. I mean, you could have thrown a stone to where the toilets were. Um, that's one of my favorite images in the film. And that was shot um, on the C200, the Canon. wasn't the red, believe it or not. But yeah, so we would drive around. And then other times um, I would find people on Facebook. Uh, there were so many articles about the toilets and people commenting and giving their opinions. And so... I would reach out to people and just be like, Hey, you seem very uh, passionate about your, about the toilets one way or another. Would you allow me to come and talk to you about it on camera? And I got a lot of no's, but there were some people that said yes. So some people that lived around the toilets, I would literally like knock on their door and ask them. And uh, I did get a few doors slammed in my face. Not many, some of the people that were working in the village on the board at the time that this was going on were have since retired or even passed away. So I was trying to find some of them and I went to one guy's house because nobody would return my calls. And I knocked on his door and, you know, as soon as he heard the word toilets, he like slammed the door in my face. So the people in the blue truck were who I had in mind. That's a brilliant, brilliant shot. And I can't tell you how happy it makes me that you tell me it's a found shot, that that wasn't some friends of yours that you staged in this kind of beautiful environment. Um, what was the relationship between the two? I couldn't quite figure that out. I know we could, we couldn't figure it out either. I was like, I had never met those people in my life. The girl who was uh, in the shot, she was a uh, local girl. She was from uh, Canton, went to college there too. And he was a local junk collector. I, I still honestly don't know like the full details, but they were just friends. They just 
she met him and uh, maybe out drinking sometime. And, and he's a really endearing guy in some ways. Like I talked to him for a little while and I don't know. I don't know. They, they just, they hit it off. And it was kind of like, it almost felt like they had a little bit of a, like a protective, I don't know, like they, they had this sense of trying to protect each other. Like she protecting him from um, like ridicule, maybe, I don't know. And then him protecting her in a way that like, uh, like a traditional man would, um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sexual. It wasn't, it was just a f- true friendship. Even beyond the, the shot itself, it was one of the more interesting interactions in the film. So it strikes me that this film is made immeasurably better uh, for it being in your backyard because you didn't have to schedule trips and have this very uh, tight idea of what you wanted in advance. You could kind of just keep living your life and keep being struck by inspiration and keep dipping into your town to get new stuff. How did you know when you were done with the film? Yeah, that is exactly how it went. Like whenever I had free time, I was like working on it. I would go, I would drive over to Potsdam. Um, if I was looking for community members or getting B-roll, the toilets, like Hank, you know, gave me permission to do whatever I wanted on his properties. But at the same time, I'm like, you can only show so many shots of the toilets, even though there's quite a few interesting toilets. Like I, I definitely like tried to highlight some of the more unique uh, versions that he had. But, you know, at some point the toilet imagery might get a little old. Um, so when, when was I done? I think, well, there was the lawsuit and that was, it was actually going on when I was making the film. Um, and I was honestly, I was kind of waiting. I said, this might go another like two years because they were telling me like, if this goes to court, it's going to take two years. And I was like, well, I can't finish the film if, unless I, if it goes to court and like, just put it out there, like without an ending, so I was going to just wait and that was going to be a little painful, but, um, the Hanks one lawyer, John Crane was telling me that, um, he's like, this is, this case is like a law school exam question. He's like, this has the potential to go to like the U S Supreme court. He's like, will it, who knows? It was like, wait and see for a little while. And then they had the settlement for me. It feels a little bit like it's put to bed that the distributor is like chop chop like we need this we want it in may and they finally gave me like a hard deadline and so i was just working within that deadline well i think it's a tremendous achievement to make a film like that basically with pocket money and bring some people in on a kind of a futures sort of arrangement and get this distributed so widely and i believe this cracked the top 15 on itunes at some point for documentary in the u.s that's an enormous success story. Yep. You, you must feel very good about that. There's a large sense of relief, but also like I did really feel proud. It was probably like a feeling that I had never felt before. Like I just had this feeling like nobody's going to like this film. Like it's, it's going to be trash. And like I spent all this time on it. And, uh, but then you start hear, hearing some of the positive things when it first comes out. And, and really I didn't, I, I know there's people out there that aren't going to like the film and there's people that have said so much, but when it's overwhelmingly positive and, and you hear nice things about it, it does make you feel good and it feels like it was worthwhile. So that was, it, it, it was a proud moment for me, for sure. Well, from my perspective, it, it wasn't true crime. It wasn't about a celebrity. It wasn't a band documentary. It was just a, a, a wonderfully charismatic found story. And I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. This is 
been so much fun talking to you and learning about the film and congratulations. This it's a really a major achievement. I hope you're very proud. I look forward to these other Potsdam stories that are that are coming soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always nice to talk potties. <laughs> Thanks again to Morgan Elliott. His film, Potty Town, can be seen on a variety of streaming services, including Apple TV and Amazon Prime. Join me next time when I mix up the format just a little bit. I'll be talking to former Gonzo journalist and current documentary film producer, David Holthouse. See you then. (laughs) 